I, I have to admit, I think I had more fun preparing this teaching than I've ever had preparing a teaching before. Um, I, I also f- feel like, you know, I don't know how many times I've read through this parasha before. I mean, I think this is my seventh year reading through the Torah annually in Hebrew. So, I mean, I, I've been over this, uh, this material, right? But this is the year where this parasha just came alive for me. Like, I really got into it. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to sharing some of that with you today. Um, this is, it's like one of the crescendos of this parasha is atonement. So uh, this is a very fitting theme for um, the whole Yom Kippur season, whether you be observing it today or on Monday. This is a, a very fitting theme. Uh, we're going to look at that together. Um, uh, a famous Jewish poet from the 1800s said that he who reads the scriptures, reads a translation of the scriptures, is like he who kisses his bride through a veil. When you read a translation, it's like there's just something in between. You know what I'm saying? You're not coming in that first-hand contact with the holy texts. Um, when it comes to Parshat Hazinu, I think the way we read it is like we're, it's like kissing a bride through five veils. I mean, we have multiple layers here that we're missing. That's true. The Holy Spirit removes the veil even through translations. In fact, um, you know, we look at history. There have been people who are absolutely fluent in Torah Hebrew. And yet, when it comes to the depths of it, maybe they were missing it. Maybe when the giver of the Torah himself appeared in person right there, they, uh, maybe some of them rejected him, you know? So yes, the Holy Spirit can remove that. But aside from the fact that we're reading in English when um, this, this parsha was originally written in Hebrew, um, there are also several other layers that we're missing. <coughs> and, um, we're going to try and remove those layers today so we can get some first-hand contact with this parsha. Um, the first layer that we sometimes have between us and this parsha is we read it about them. Instead of reading this this passage being about us, we read it about, quote, them. And uh, this is a mistake. This, uh, this puts a layer between us and the vital significance of this parsha. Um, let, let's look at Deuteronomy 32, verse 45. 32:45. It says this. When Moshe had finished speaking all these words, to all Israel. So, who was this song addressed to? Kalal Yisrael. It was addressed to all of Israel. So whether we be from Jewish or non-Jewish backgrounds, if we are members of, of Israel through Mashiach and our faith in Mashiach, then this is a song that was specifically addressed to you, to you, to you. It was addressed to us. So that's the first layer that we can pull back. Um... If, if I were to use like uh, kind of traditional like Christianese, I would say that this song is just as much about the church as it is about Israel. Now, I, I don't support uh, like bilateral ecclesiology or um, like the concept of you know the dual covenant theology or something. But I'm just saying sometimes if we if we're coming from a church background or if we're in the church, we'll look at this and we'll say, well, this is about Israel. But I'm here to say that this is just as much about the body of Messiah as it is about the physical Jewish people. Um, there's, there's a proof text for this concept. Actually, there are quite a few of them in, uh, in Paul's epistles. But 
uh, a very notable one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he uh, takes the Corinthians in a historical overview of some of the major mistakes that Israel made in the wilderness, in the generation that received the Torah. And uh, he makes some applications. Apparently he thought that was relevant to uh, what was going on in Corinth at the time. And he, he opens this chapter by saying, I don't want you to be ignorant of what happened to our fathers. And th this is a kicker because Paul was talking to a congregation that was a mixture of Jewish and non-Jewish people, but from all appearances it was predominantly a Gentile congregation in terms of their background. He's talking to a, to a bunch of people that are ex-pagans. It was only a couple years ago that these guys were going to the temples and praying to Roman gods and do, slaughtering the offerings to um, Greek mythological deities and, uh, and they came out of that. And now they're believing in the God of Israel. And uh, what does he say to these guys? He says to them that this generation that received this song, that's their father's. That's their fathers. The Hebrew word for our fathers is avotenu. Can we say avotenu? avotenu. Yeah, like avot is fathers. Avotenu is our fathers. Okay, this is, this is the, the concept that uh, Shaul gives here. Um, there, I'm, I'm reading some early church literature right now. I received this 10-volume set from my birthday of all of the early church literature, uh, church father types from... Um, the end of the apostolic era up until the Nicene Council. And I just finished reading a couple of weeks ago the pseudo-epistle of Barnabas. It's supposedly by Barnabas. It's obviously not. And um, it's extremely anti-Semitic, like rabidly anti-Semitic. Um, it's also fraught with irrational rationale, um, with historical errors, with... Uh, uh, ignorance of Jewish custom. Uh, it's quite, a, quite an uproar. Um, but in a, I think it stands as a monument to what happens when we sever ourselves from the Hebrew roots, the Jewish foundations of our faith. Uh, we can get really messed up. But one of the things that really pops out in this pseudo-epistle of Barnabas is the us-and-them mentality. Uh, Barnabas, pseudo-Barnabas, he writes saying, whenever he references the Jewish people, physical Israel, he calls it them. And then he says, us, and us and them are always pitted against each other. And he talks about how the error of, that they are in, referring to the Jewish people, and how we have all the truth, and uh, etc. It's, it's, it's an example of what happens when we fall into that us and them mentality, and we begin looking at the Torah as something that doesn't apply to us, as, uh, as a Yeshua movement. Um, on a deeper level... Uh, aside from the us and them thing of physical Israel and the body of Messiah, um, just talking about human nature, um, I, I assume all of us here are descended from Adam. Do we have any like descendants of aliens in our midst? I don't know, maybe sometimes we wonder about each other sometimes. But I don't think so. Okay, okay so we're all descendants of Adam here, right? Okay, then we can talk about human nature here. Um, this, this, this song that we're going to be getting into is a very accurate analysis of human nature. So we can't look at this song as just something that applies to the people of Israel. This is something that applies to us because, hey, we have that same human nature. Um, you, you could say that we need salvation just as much as they did. Um, in my opinion, the moment that we begin to think that we're different from everyone else, or that we're different from, quote, the Jewish people. Um, in terms of our need for salvation, that's the moment that we begin our 
fall from grace. Uh, that's the moment that we become, we, have become we, we become in danger of becoming arrogant as a people. Like that's the moment that we begin to tur- turn pale and mean and, and ugly and all the while looking in our lying mirrors of self-righteousness that tell us that we're the fairest of them all. Have any of you ever experienced that? I've experienced that. It's human nature. You want to look in that lying mirror of self-righteousness that tells you that you're the best, you're different than everybody else, you have it together just a little more than the person down the street or whoever, right? Or the people in the news that are doing like uh, ex- exceptionally evil things. But uh, the truth that we get from this parsha is, hey, we're all the same. If we're descended from Adam. If we, if we claim to be descended from aliens, then maybe we can claim to be different. But... Uh, Okay, if we, if we do claim to be descended from aliens, uh, then we need salvation even more. You think that's an accurate analysis? Okay. Um, <coughs> so that's the first layer. Who does this song apply to? The second layer is the layer of time. It's too easy to read a passage like this and think about it in terms of this is something that was spoken three and a half millennia, or how many millennia ago? Like, approximately three and a half millennia ago. I mean, if you're a young earth creationist, if you believe the biblical chronologies, then that is over half of human history ago. That was a long time ago. I mean, some things have changed since then. It's easy to say, well, you know, a lot of things have changed. I I don't know if this really applies anymore. Maybe it isn't as relevant. But uh, there's a verse that Moshe dropped in this parasha. And I think it was specifically for us who come in later generations and maybe would be tempted to think that. Uh, We read in Deuteronomy 31, verse 29. Deuteronomy 31, 29. I know, Moshe says to Israel, that after my death you will act corruptly and turn from the way which I have commanded you. And evil will befall you when? How does your versions read it? Deuteronomy 31.29 Evil will befall you when? In the Acharit Hayamim? Someone's reading the Hebrew. What? The last days? Yep. NASB renders that the latter days. Um, there, like we said, is the Acharit Hayamim, it's the end of days, is the traditional Jewish express in, um, in translating that. So, this passage is about a generation that we the end of days, the Acharit Hayamim. Now, in Paul's and Peter's opinions, you read a couple of their letters, you realize they believed that they were in the Acharit Hayamim, the end of days, and yes, they were. How much more so, therefore, are we in the Acharit Hayamim? And how much more so, therefore, does this parsha apply to us? We could almost say that of all the preceding generations of the people of Israel, we are the generation to which this parsha most applies. So it's actually the exact opposite of what our first response would be. So we can say that that's the second layer, that's the second veil that we're going to pull out of here, okay? It's the time layer. This is about right now. This is about our future. The third layer that we could pull out of this is an easy mistake to make. Um, We generally read this passage as like a narrative, right? Um, unless you're Charlotte, you're probably not going to go up and sing your section from the Bema, right? But this is actually a passage that is designed to be sung. When it was originally given by Moshe, it was sung. Oh, I wish we had that melody still. 
Wouldn't that be incredible to hear like the actual tune that Moshe sang it in? I don't know, maybe some of us would be weirded out. It probably sounds really Middle Eastern or, you know, in a, a different type of a chord progression or mode than what most of us are accustomed to. But uh, that is unfortunate. We read this passage when it's made to be sung. And uh, I've been thinking for years, man, like we have so many talented musicians in the Messianic community. Why hasn't anyone put this whole parsha to music yet? Um, I was asking that a couple years ago about Exodus 15, the song of Moshe. That was another one. And so I, I eventually decided to just try to do it myself. So I set that to music. And I remember singing that with you all. It was a great experience. Yesterday evening, Genevieve and I were doing our Arab Shabbat supper. And she said, why, why doesn't anyone set this to music? I was like, yeah, no kidding, eh? And she was like, you set it to music, Izzy. And I was like, because ah, I'm too busy. I have lots of things on the go. I, uh, I have to finish the Hebrew course. And I was like, wait a minute, it's Shabbat. And I actually don't have all that stuff on the go. So I was like, a couple of minutes went by. And whatever internal resistance that I had to the idea crumbled. And I started thinking through some flows of melody in my head. And before supper was even over, I was at the, the piano and developing a melody for this. I, I only got like 10 verses in though, so I can't sing it for you. I'm sorry to say but hey, maybe within the next couple of weeks I'll actually be able to finish this melody and we can sing Hazinu together. That would be really enjoyable. Um, but anyway, that's another layer that we miss. And you know, like when you read a song that was designed to be sung, you just miss a, you miss a major dimension, don't you? I mean, let's say that you, let's say there's some hit song on the radio and it just grabs people's hearts. Like they just want to hear it over and over again. I mean, if you just read the lyrics, it's just not the same, is it? Can you imagine, like, if they're playing the, the song, and instead of the singer coming on and singing it, someone is just like, click, and they just start reading the lyrics of the song? I mean, it's just not going to have the same appeal, is it? So that, that's a layer that we're missing here. And we'll, we'll work to change that. We'll work to change that. Um, the fourth veil that could exist between us and this passage is that it's not only a song, it's poetry. How many of you know if you read poetry as prose, you are committing a literary blunder? You're just, you're not going to enjoy it to the same depth. I mean, Genevieve and I were talking about Hebrew poetry. Reading Hebrew is a delightful experience, but when you read Hebrew poetry, there's just this added dimension to it. Uh, It's the same in English. How many of you have noticed that? There's just something, there's a greater layer of meaning when you read poetry. And uh, this, isn't, this isn't a narrative, this isn't prose, this is poetry. It's, it's, it's made to be read as poetry. So um, that's something that we're going to be looking at here right away. Uh, there are different categories of poetry. Who here can name some different categories of poetry that you're aware of? Limerick. What? Limericks. Limericks? <laughs> Haiku? There's free verse. There's like there's romantic poetry. There is um, like historically based poetry. There's all kinds of poetry. Um, poetry, I think, would best qualify as a genre of poetry called epic poetry. Now, uh, I love the term epic personally. I think it's one of the grandest words in the English language. Uh, It's just a word that carries such vast scope that conveys 
like so many qualities that I I I, uh, I really come alive to it. You know, the, the term epic it conveys like drama and and heroism and and great actions and and so many things. Um, the the term epic actually comes from the ancient Greek term epikos. Can we all say epikos? I uh, I actually checked the building before anyone came in to make sure there were no stones or tomatoes lying around here that you could throw at me. I'm going to teach you some Greek words today. Yes, we're a Messianic Jewish congregation. Yes, we love Hebrew, but we're going to learn a little bit of Greek here today too, okay? So epikos. Uh, epikos is from the Greek term uh, epos, which means a word, a story, or a poem. That's what epic is from. Okay? Um, here's a definition of epic. An epic is a lengthy narrative poem, ordinarily concerning a serious subject, containing details of heroic deeds and events, significant to a culture or a nation. How about that? Look at this song of Moshe. Does it ever qualify as an epic? The first epics are known as primary or original epics. Now, um, often when you refer to epics, you refer to Greek epics. They're some of the earliest ones on record. And those are called primary epics. But Moshe, as is pointed out by many of the early Jewish philosophers and church writers, people like uh, Philo or uh, Justin Martyr, Moshe preceded the earliest Greek authors by a considerable span of time. So we could say that Hazinu is one of the earliest epics we have from human history. Uh, Gilgamesh is a little older, maybe. But we have this one it's in, in its entirety. And I think it's a little more coherent than Gilgamesh too, if you, if you ask me. So anyway, uh, this is a primary epic. It's an original epic. <coughs> when, we, when we read this passage in this context, it comes alive. It rings with drama. It sparkles with phraseology, like sunshine glinting on ocean waves. Um, this, this song contains details of a heroic God, heroic deeds, His heroic deeds, and it communicates future events significant to our nation. So this definitely qualifies as epic poetry. And when we read it as such, it begins to really come alive and speak to our hearts. So that's, uh, I think we said the fourth layer. Uh, the fifth layer is that um, this, is a, this is a drama. This, this song is a drama. It is dramatic poetry also. And uh, when we read it as just like bland narrative, or if we try and approach it as a passage of systematic theology, it just falls flat. You don't get the fizz. You don't get the fizz. You know what I'm saying? So uh, we're going to break this down and we're going to look at this poem and see how it fits the classical definitions of a drama, of, a, of, a, of like a dramatic story. And it's remarkable just how it does fit, how it comes alive when we look at it in, the, in that lens. Um, so literarily speaking, uh, an epic poem... And specifically in this case, this epic poem, it has a narrator. Everybody say narrator. And an audience. Unless it's a really bad one, then maybe it doesn't get an audience, I don't know. Um, this poem specifically features a protagonist, a deuteragonist, a tritagonist, and an antagonist. And we're going to break down each of these terms and look at them. And I think it's going to come alive for us. Um, Let's talk about the protagonist first. Uh, protagonist is from the Greek term protagonistes. Uh, it means one who plays the first part or the chief actor. Uh, here's the definition. The protagonist is the main character 
the central or primary personal figure of a literary, theatrical, or musical narrative. This is a literary, a theatrical, and a musical narrative around whom the events of the narrative's plot revolve and with whom the audience is intended to share the most empathy. So the, main, the protagonist is the main character or hero. Let me ask you, who is the protagonist in this epic drama? Maybe, but... Hmm? He's the narrator. I, I, I suggest to you that it is the Almighty Himself. I think that Yahweh is the protagonist in this drama. He seems to have center stage. He, he, uh, he gives several soliloquies in this drama. Um, in this drama, he has a poetic title that doesn't come up much in the Tanakh. He's called Eloah. Can we all say Eloah? That's the singular for the plural Hebrew term Elohim. So we can all say Eloah. Okay, so that's what he's the deuteragonist is the second character in the drama. Everybody say deuteragonist. Yeah. So who is the deuteragonist? Who is the second figure in this drama? Moses, the narrator. Israel, that is correct. Israel is the deuteragonist. Um, in this passage, Israel is called Yeshurun, poetically. Everybody say Yeshurun. So we have Eloah who is the protagonist, and we have Yeshurun, who is the deuteragonist. Um, uh, interesting note about deuteragonists that I read. The deuteragonist may switch from being with or against the protagonist, depending on the deuteragonist's own conflict or flaw. Flaws, excuse me. So the, the deuteragonist, he can either be against the main character or he can be with the main character. Uh, what do you think? In, in, th in this case, is Yeshurun more with Eloah, or is he against Eloah? Sometimes he's with, and sometimes he's against. Do you think you could say? Yeah. Um, he has his own conflict in this drama. There's this pull between the one true God and all the false gods, the, the demons that would seduce Yeshurun. Um, okay, the Tritagonist. He's the third character in the story. And uh, what I see in this poem is that the Tritagonist is an ensemble of outsiders from the nations. And actually we can break down that ensemble into three specific categories of outsiders from the nations. Uh, number one, in verse 21, we have the people who aren't a people. Enter the foolish nation. That's in verse 21. And actually I'm going to read this to you. I want to make a couple of comments about this player in this drama. He, uh, he says... Um, They've made me jealous with what isn't a God, isn't God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So, I will make them jealous with those who aren't a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Now, did you know that Paul quotes this verse of the Torah in his letters? And he applies it. Yeah. You're a disciple of Yeshua. If you belong to the body of Messiah, <laughs> I hate to say this, but this verse is you. <laughs> um, where, where is that? I forgot to include that in my notes, the reference. But he, he quotes this verse, and uh, then he builds a case for how believers from the nations, Gentile, people from a Gentile background, are designed to provoke Israel to jealousy. You remember that. 
Where did, where did Saul get this idea from that the Gentile believers would provoke the physical Jewish people to jealousy? He got it from this parasha. He got it from this very verse. And I don't know if that's a compliment or not. Yeah, sure. Here it is. In uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 19, he says, First Moses says, I will, make, I will make you jealous by that which isn't a nation, by a nation without understanding, I will anger you. And, uh, you know, so this verse, when you look at it in the Torah context, it just, it's applying to the generic nations, right? It doesn't say exactly who it's about. But then Paul comes along, and he builds on this verse and says, this is your job description. Two people believers from a Gentile background. I don't know. I mean, maybe it isn't the biggest compliment. But you know what? Maybe it is. Um, when we look at the Torah, there are, there are certain descriptions that are sprinkled throughout it that describe the future Yeshua movement, the congregation of Mashiach, uh, that describe like us as disciples. Some of them are uh, like... Yaakov is told that he'll become a kahalamim, a, a congregation of peoples. Uh, Ephraim is told that he'll become a mloha gerim, a fullness of the Gentiles. Um, Israel at Mount Sinai is told that there will be a mamlakat kohanim, like a, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And these are all titles that the apostles applied to the body of Messiah. And similarly, this is another qualifier that the apostle applied to the body of Messiah. Now, this may explain why Paul talked several times in his epistles about how our faith is foolish to, to physical Israel. We believe in a man who is executed uh, in a very not pretty way, who died over 2,000 years ago, almost, uh, crucified by the state. We believe in a dead guy. I mean, really, you know, when, when a Jewish person looks at that, it's like, that's dumb. Like, that's foolish. That, that's, the, that's the first response that Jewish people have. That's the first response they had in the first century. The cross of Messiah is foolishness to the Jew. That's what Paul said. But it is the power of God to those of us who are being saved, to those of us who have accepted the message of the cross of faith. So, you know, yeah, we do come across as foolish. And... Uh, if you look at the Jewish world, if you look at Messianic and their reaction, their reaction to Gentile believers in Yeshua, you know what? It, this fits it pretty good. He says, they've made me jealous. Or, or, I will make them jealous. This is true. Often, even Gentile believers who take upon themselves the yoke of the Torah in following the example of our rabbi, which is a good thing. It really bugs some Messianic Jews. Some Messianic Jews are racists. Some of them are bigoted against Gentile believers. Some of them want to retain this us-and-them mentality and say, well, you know, the whole Torah, it's for us, but you, you know, just stay in the church and do your Christian thing, and maybe you can visit our Messianic Jewish synagogue every now and then, but we really don't want you. Okay? I'm sorry to say that, but that happens way too much. That attitude is too common among several mainline Messianic Jewish organizations that I'm aware of. And you know what? They're doing a lot of good, but when it comes to that area, I am in sharp disagreement with them. And we see this dynamic right here in this song, this dramatic song that continues to play out. Um, oh, there was even a publication recently where the author, a Messianic Jewish author, said, you know, Gentiles, if they're going to do, like Saturday, you know, the Shabbat, that's our day. 
You know, and if Gentiles are going to do it, well, they're, they're infringing on our Jewish identity. They're having an identity crisis. If they have to do a Saturday Shabbat, they should at least not do it like us Jews. They should at least just, why can't they come up with their own prayers or their own traditions? I mean, th- this is like a big mainline Jewish publication I'm talking about, okay? I, that really bothers me. I have to admit it. But it is prophesied that it would happen. That Gentile believers would be a source of jealousy. Hey, it's, you know what says it in the Torah? It's going to happen. So that's kind of comforting. Um, what's the second phrase? I will provoke them to anger. I will irritate them with the foolish nation. So you know what? Yeah, we're going to come across as foolish. We're going to really bug people sometimes. We're going to be a major source of irritation. And this is true in the non-Messianic and in the Messianic Jewish world. So I just wanted to point that out. Um, it's very applicable for today. So that's our first, that's our first subgrouping of the tri- tritagonists. Um, our second subgrouping of the tritagonists, the third character in this epic drama, is um, they're first mentioned in verse 24. And they are mentioned several times. It, it talks about all of these judgments that come to Israel. Um, verses like 27 and 30 mention it too. He, uh, he says in verse 27, had, had I not feared the provocation by the enemy that their adversaries would misjudge, that they would say your hand is triumphant and Yahweh hasn't done all this. Um, then moving on, we'll, we'll, we'll look at a couple other passages where the, uh, this malicious side of the tritagonists uh, appear. But, so that's, that's group two. It's the enemy nations through whom Israel is judged. Um, I want to make, make a note about this. Did you notice that it's talking about the enemy nations... It's not talking about the, the ultimate antagonist that we're going to get to in just a second. Um, and there, there's a lesson there. Maybe you already got it when I just said that. If not, I'm going to break it down for you a little bit more in, in a couple of minutes. Um, thirdly, the third group of the protagonists, and this is my favorite group, they're mentioned in verse 43. They are the people from the nations who are friendly to Israel. Verse 43, rejoice, O nations, with his people. So the nations who rejoice with Israel, they are the friendly tritagonist bunch. Okay, the fourth player in this drama is dum dum dum, the villain, the antagonist. Um, it's from the Greek term antagonistes, the opponent, a competitor, a rival. The antagonist. Here's the definition: is a character, a group of characters, or an institution that represents the opposition against which the protagonist must contend. In the classic style of story, wherein the action consists of a hero fighting a villain, the two can be regarded as protagonist and antagonist respectively. The antagonist may also represent a major threat or obstacle to the main character by their very existence, without necessarily actively targeting him or her. Let me ask you, who is the antagonist in this drama? the opponent, the competitor, the rival. Enter on center stage, beginning in verse 12, the foreign god. In verse 16, he's called the strange god. In verse 17, it just outright says, These guys are demons. They're gods whom Israel did not originally know. 
Johnny-come-lately gods. And the Hebrew term there for demons is Shadim. And uh, does anyone want to literally know what the term Shade means? It means a demon. <laughs> Keep it simple. Um, the antagonist. I think idolatry can um, be materialism, but often there's a demonic entity behind that materialism. You know, carrot and stick kind of thing. You, you grab for grab the carrot and end up following the one who yields the stick. Um, verse 37 also mentions the antagonist. He will say, where are their gods? The rock in which they sought refuge. This is actually another poetic term for the Almighty in this, in this epic drama. He is called the rock. Hatsur. Can we all say Hatsur? Yeah. He is the rock. And then these other guys, they're like fake rocks. So that's the antagonist in this drama. Um, finally, who, we, uh, we need a narrator. Of course, as we already discussed, Moshe is the poetic narrator of this drama. Although most of the last half is actually a soliloquy by the protagonist. Uh, of course, the main character is Eloah. Uh, here's the definition of soliloquy. A soliloquy is a device often used in drama whereby a character relates his thoughts and feelings to himself and to the audience without addressing any of the other characters. And actually, uh, we have two instances of soliloquy in this epic poem. Uh, verses 20 to 35 are the first section of soliloquy. It's quite lengthy. And uh, then there's a short interjection in verse 36. And then in verse 37, the soliloquy continues all the way to verse 42, after which the, solilo- the, uh, the epic poem ends with a crescendo in verse 43. And finally, we need an audience here. Who's the audience of this epic poem? Yes. All Israel, which includes us. Um, we, we read that in 32, verse 44, which we already read, read where it says, Moshe spoke this to all Israel. Also, if we look at verse 1, we learn that the heavens and the earth are the audience to this epic drama that continues to play out in our generation, the crescendo of which we haven't even reached. You know, we, we are part of a real-life story here. This isn't just like a literary, literary fiction, right? This is, this is a, a true drama that we are actually caught up in. And, and, and the scope of this drama, it is beyond our comprehension. Um, we can't actually see, I believe, the fullness of who the audience is to this drama. Like, you can imagine if you're an actor on the stage and it's nighttime and you look out there and all you see is black. The stage lights are blinding you. You don't know who the audience is. You don't know if there is a handful of people or if there are 10,000 people watching. You don't know if it's some of the greatest people in your country who are watching or, or someone that you really admire or maybe someone that you hate with a vehement hatred. Um, we do not know ultimately who all watching the drama. We don't know who is out there beyond the stage lights, who is watching the drama of Crown of Messiah unfold here in Prince Albert. We don't know who all has been watching the drama of the saints of Messiah throughout the ages being, being crucified and chopped up and hung and tortured for their faith. This is a drama we're talking about. We can only understand our lives. We can only understand discipleship to the Master. We can only understand church history in the context of drama. 
That's, that is something that is just nailing me from this parsha. And I, I don't know about you, but it brings something really deep in my heart to life too. Uh, the, last, the last element of this epic poem that we're going to break down is the acts in it. In a classical drama, you have five acts. And uh, actually, this epic poem fits this uh, categorization of five acts very neatly. Let's look at that together. It's the last element that we're going to really analyze from this. Um, in a drama, the first act is the introduction. And, uh, you know, with almost any movie you watch, you, you'll, you'll see this in movies, you'll see this in, uh, in novels and in fiction writings, um, not just in classical, like, high drama, right? So Act 1 is where the main characters are introduced and the story is given a setting. Um, act 1, in this parasha, from what I can see, is verses 4. Verse 4 is where... Eloah is introduced, and um, we get a pretty good look at what he's all about, his character. And um, then leading up to verse 9, it, uh, it, it stayed, like, enter Act 1. We can already see that we have a perfect God we're dealing with here, and we have a bunch of people that are in a relationship with him, and they're really messed up. Like, from the very start, we can see this is a troubled relationship. This relationship is almost on the rocks. There is some major problems here. So that's Act 1. Um, act 2 in the drama is where the scene begins to rise. Uh, you know, it's like in Act 2, conflict is introduced, um, the plot thickens, the story begins to escalate. And uh, we, we, we see Act 2 in rising action in this epic drama you could, see, you could break it down into three sub-acts. Let's look at the three sub-acts in, um, in this epic drama. Um, firstly, in verses 10 to 14, we see the hero locating Yaakov, initiating a rescue operation, leading him to the high places of the earth, and lavishly providing for him. That's, that's sub-act 1. Um, this is, this like, you know, in, in, in a classic story, this is the part where the hero rescues the fair maiden, where he, he uh, lovingly takes care of her, where he, uh, like, showers her with gifts, nice diamond rings, or something that she always wanted that maybe she uh, didn't even know that he knew about. Um, this is, like, the part of the story where he begins to dashingly win her heart. Okay? So when we look at Hazinu in this context, we're going to begin to understand what this is about. This is about a relationship between a, a passionate and romantic lover of a god and uh, a fair maiden named Israel. The second sub-act in this, this uh, rising actionary of the drama is in uh, verses 15 to 18. We have Yeshurun, her response, her immediate response is, uh, it's interesting. I'll read you a couple of the verbs here, okay? Uh, grew fat, kicked, grew fat, thick and sleek, forsook God, scorned the rock, made him jealous, provoked him to anger, sacrificed to demons, neglected the rock, forgot the God. So you, you can see that, um, man, talk about the lover being dropped on his face. I mean, you know, he really put himself on the line here. He goes and he rescues the fair maiden and he just gives her everything she could want. And, and like, what does he get in response? Hey, it's like, this girl has problems. 
um, you, you could say that this is the part of the, like a classical story where the maiden starts making eyes at other guys, playing around behind her lover's back, uh, this kind of thing. Okay, and then like the third sub-act in this, this epic drama is verses 19 to 25. Verses 19 to 25. This is where Eloah becomes jealous. He becomes absolutely enraged, and he begins to judge his people. Um, you could say, like, in a classic story, this is the part of the story where the lover is overwhelmed with jealousy, where he gets really angry, like, infuriated, like, seeing red and green at the same time. Um, this is the part of the story where the couple are shouting at the top of their lungs at each other, and pots and pans are hurtling past heads and embedding themselves in the kitchen walls. Like, this is, you know, things are really building here. All right. Um, then we hit Act 3 in classical story. Act 3 is the climax. It's the high point of the story. Um, we read in verses 26 and 27, this is, like, this is where it hits the high point. He says, I would have said, I'll cut them to pieces. I will remove the memory of them from men. It's like, he's going to end this thing. Right? And then he has like... And then, and that, yeah, that's the cliffhanger. Um, you can see this is the part of the story where the lover is seriously considering divorce. Um, it just it doesn't look like it's going to work out. The love's just not going to work out. Uh, from all appearances, like the hero and the fair maiden in this story, they are incompatible. They are absolutely incompatible. I mean, you know, when the pots and pans start whizzing by heads, you know something's wrong here. It's getting a little dangerous. And I mean, man, this relationship, this was a dangerous relationship for Israel. Israel almost got wiped out here. You know, usually... Well, you know, like in, in the stereotype, it's usually the woman who's throwing the pots and pans, right? In this case, it's the Almighty who's launching the pots and pans. Yeah, but I mean, she's the one who's like, man, I mean, he had a right to be mad there, really. So anyway, um, Act 4 in the classical drama, <coughs> it's the uh, generally termed falling action it's like where the, you've reached the climax, the action is beginning to wane, the conflicts are dealt with, crises begin to be resolved, unless it's a tragedy, in which case this is where everybody starts to die. But uh, this isn't a tragedy, actually. So everybody isn't dying in this epic drama. Um, uh, you think we could, break, we could break this section down into three sub-acts? Act, act 4... Falling action could be broken down into three sub-acts. Uh, firstly, in verse 36, we read that uh, Yahweh will vindicate his people. He will have compassion on his servants when he sees that their strength is gone and there's none remaining bonded free. So, you know, in verse, verse 27, he begins to reconsider on what he plans to do to Israel in his his infuriated state, and his, of course, his just, his just state. Um, by verse 36, he is actually beginning to consider, like he, he, he's becoming compassionate. So he's beginning to, uh, okay, uh, second sub-act, revenge is taken on the tritagonist. In verses 34 to 35, we read, isn't it laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine in retribution. In due time their foot will slip, for the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. So this is the stage where, like, the revenge is on its way to these 
evil dudes who really deserve it. Um, thirdly, the third sub-act, so, you know, hopefully Sharun is beginning to learn her lesson. She's beginning to see this action and uh, beginning to take some things to heart. Uh, verses 28 and 29, um, you know, he says, Would that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would discern their future. Um, so he's hoping that she's, she's like beginning to think about some of this. Um, also in verses 37 to 39, we have the Almighty uh, describing himself gloriously. Um, maybe, maybe she's beginning to realize that he's the one for her. He says in verse 39, See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. I'm the one who puts to death and gives life. I'm the one who wounds and I heal. And there's no one who can deliver from my hand. So um, hopefully she's beginning to realize this. That's the third sub-act. Um, you, you could say that this is the part in the story where the hero forgives the fair maiden, where he freaks out on the slimeball guys who are trying to destroy the relationship and seriously incapacitates them, and uh, where the fair maiden begins to realize how wonderful her lover really is. Uh, act 5, in a classical story, is the end, the uh, denouement. Is that how you say it? I have to admit it. My French is pretty rusty. Anyway, we'll say denouement, okay? English. Um, denouement is derived from the old French word denoir, to untie. Everybody say untie. And from the Latin word notice, for knot. Okay? So the denouement is where the knots are untied. Uh, denouement is the unraveling or untying of the complexities of a plot. It's the act in which the conflict is completely resolved. The tension is gone. And the story concludes. It's where they all live happily af ever after. Um, in a western, it's where the cowboy rides off into the sunset. In a Little House on the Prairie episode, it's where Pa says, Well, all's well that ends well. And in a Jane Austen story, it's the scene where everyone is happily married. Which, after all, is the whole point of every Jane Austen story. Um, which verse could you say is the denouement of this epic drama. I would say it's verse, 40, verse 43, where Yahweh atones for his land and for his people. The crescendo of this epic poem, it isn't a catastrophe where God destroys his people. The crescendo of this poem is the point where God shows mercy, where he atones for his land and for his people through the exquisite sufferings and the shed blood of his crucified Mashiach. So we see that the the way this drama ends is just in one line saying in verse 43 that he will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. Atonement. His atonement through Mashiach is the whole point of this epic drama. Wow. And this is a season where we are commemorating the atonement of Messiah. So I feel that it is so fitting I just love how this is a drama that points to the compassion of our God and to the atonement that He ultimately brings. Um, if we wanted to like break down this <coughs> passage in terms of dialectics, um, a common dialectic is like the thesis, antithesis, synthesis dialectic. Have any of you encountered that? It's like you have the thesis, then you have the antithesis, and then you have the point where they're brought together. And there's some sense made from it. You can actually really see this dialectic in the in this passage, uh, the thesis is God's perfection. The antithesis 
is the severe imperfection of people. We are looking at some significant loggerheads here. And what is the synthesis? The synthesis is the point where God and Israel are brought together over the atonement of Messiah. It's not where the, it's not where the, the thesis doesn't change actually. The antithesis is what's changed through the power of the gospel to not to change the Torah that eternally defines sin, but to change us. He didn't find fault in the Torah, according to Hebrews 8, he found fault in us. So he changes the antithesis, and we have a synthesis through the gospel. Hallelujah for that, hey? Hallelujah for the gospel dialectic. (laughs) So um, maybe we can draw one practical application from this whole story. Um, How many of you have ever been offended by someone, hurt by someone? Maybe some of us have kind of felt like the protagonist in the story where there was an injustice done to us, where someone mistreated us. Um, I think we've all been there, unless we lived like in a monastery where we're the only person in the monastery, you know? I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know, we're we're humans. We live with other humans. We're, We're all pretty damaged. Yeah, we're all hurt. We end up hurting people. It's, it's the way it is. So maybe we can learn something from our, our heroic protagonist in this drama about relating to other people. For those of us who are married, I think there's some good practical lessons about marriage in here too. I'm a young husband, so I always watch for these things. You know, I, I'm learning about being a good husband. So maybe I'll, I'll share a couple of things from you with that. Um, firstly, in verse 36 of Deuteronomy 32, we learn... Vindicate the offender. It says that Yahweh will vindicate His people. His people don't deserve to be vindicated. His people deserve to be sent to hell. They are so wrong. But did you notice that, what is His response? To vindicate His people. So you know, uh, I don't know, maybe we look at people who offend us and we can say, you know what, that person doesn't deserve to be vindicated. That person is in the wrong. And you know, that could be the case. But I just, I wonder, when we, when we judge with a righteous judgment from a gospel perspective, from the perspective of Mashiach's heart, his loving heart, what does that look like? Um, you know, a couple of things that we can remember when we're dealing with any human being on planet Earth, um, people who have offended us, we can remember that Mashiach died for that person, whether they be believer or unbeliever. You know what? If they're not a believer, we can remember. If they are a believer, we can remember they may not be perfect. They may have made some serious mistakes, just like our forefathers and our foremothers in the faith. They really blew it. I mean, like, Judah is consorting with a prostitute. David is committing murder. Okay? I mean, I don't know if the people in our lives who have wronged us have done things on that scale of, like, immorality and evil. So we can remember when it comes to believers, God has justified that person on a legal level. When he looks at them, he sees a justified person. He's legally exonerated that person. He has made that person righteous to the core. That person, their true identity is as a righteous person. Maybe they're not living according to their true identity. Maybe they're just enjoying their stupidity a little too much. Maybe they're just not getting it into their thick head. But you know, God has made that person truly righteous deep within. Because they are his, that person is his son, that person is his daughter. So, so we can learn, like, you know, as much as possible, we don't want to condemn people. When we condemn people, we side with the accuser 
of the brethren, who is Satan. Satan is all too happy to condemn people. You know, when someone does something wrong, he just jumps on that. He is all over that, isn't he? He's like, ah, blow the whistle, God, that person sin, judge him, judge him, judge him. I mean, man, that's our adversary, right? That is one of the two ministries, if you want to call it a ministry, before the throne. The accuser of the brethren, exactly. But let me ask you, what is the other ministry before the throne? The other ministry is that of Mashiach, who lives to intercede for all of his people. So when we side with Messiah in living to intercede for messed up people, people who have hurt us, we are headed in the right direction. We are on our way to reflecting the glory of God in our lives. Let me tell you, that's the hardest thing in the world, isn't it? That is the last thing that I want to do when I am hurt or when I am offended. Two more things we can learn from this passage. They're related. In verse 36, it also says that he will have compassion on his people. Compassion is like when you have empathy with someone, when you feel with them, or you try and understand where they're coming from. When you think, you know what? This person is acting in a messed up way. But why? Have they been damaged in their past? You know? That's usually the case. We don't just like start doing stupid things. There's, there, there are reasons for it. We can remember that all of us are weak, deep within. We are absolutely destitute. Ultimately, we have nothing. And uh, we see that this is something that the Almighty takes note of. It says when He takes note of His people that their strength is gone. There is none bond or free. Um, third thing we can do in verse 33, we can atone for people. Now, we don't go and we don't shed our blood and we don't atone for their sins, right? But the Hebrew term for atonement means to cover. Let me ask you, can we cover people's sins? Is there something that covers a multitude of sins? To use the biblical terminology. Yeah, love. Um, so here, here, here's, here's what I get out of this. You know, don't, don't desire for a person's sins to be publicized. Sometimes someone does something wrong, and we just want to go out there and tell the world. I mean, we want to like get on Facebook and just make it public what this person did, how they wronged me, or, or you know, we just want to go and get on the phone and tell somebody that, uh, the, the, the injustice that has been done to me. I mean, really, like that's our first response as humans, isn't it? But you know what? A heart, a heroic heart of atonement wants to cover that person's sins and not publicize them. We want to, we, we desire for that person's mistakes and their, their shortcomings and failures to be covered to be atoned for. We, 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 we don't desire for a person to be dishonored. We desire for that person to be honored. What is your heart attitude? Because hey, it's like we can be saying the same stuff, but our heart can either be with Mashiach or with like Satan. Hey, man, I, I've experienced both. I really have. Um, finish that, that practical application with Shimon Kifa's advice. Above all, keep fervent love for one another. Because love comes from a multitude of sins. It comes from a multitude of sins. I want to give you a whirlwind overview of our Acts passage because it's really rich in uh, some things that we stand for as a congregation, the, the banner that we have been given to fly in uh, the body of Messiah in this city. Uh, Acts 24 to 26, this is like the untold story. Um, in Acts 24 verse 5, Paul is referenced as being a real pest and a ringleader of a sect, the sect of the Nazarenes. What, what, what was this a sect of? This was a sect of Judaism. We learned that the early believers were a Jewish sect. They were not a new Gentile religion. They were a sect of Judaism. 
And apparently Paul was a ringleader of that sect. Um, you know, we can read about, we read about the Nazarenes three, four centuries later. Um, uh, authors like Epiphanius reference them and say these people continue to live like good Orthodox Jews. The only thing, major difference between them and Orthodox Jews is that they believe in Yeshua as the Mashiach. I'll read that whole chapter to you sometime. Uh, it's Epiphanius, uh, Panarian t- chapters 29 and 30. Um, we read in Acts 24.14 that Paul believes everything in the law and and the prophets. Let me ask you, does that include Paul believing that the Shabbat is a sign forever throughout our generations? Sure does. Paul continued to celebrate Shabbat. Does it, would it include things like what God said about how the anointing on Aaron and his sons and their job description was to be Leolam forever? Yes, it does. Paul was pro-Torah. He was pro-temple service. Um, would it include uh, things like Yom Kippur, where it says Yom Kippur is to be something that's to be observed by all the people of Israel, everywhere they live, throughout their generations? Sure does. So this is just a very small overview of some of the things in the Torah that Paul professed to continue to believe. Um, in 24 verse 15, this just floored me. It's really simple. Paul taught that everybody was going to be raised from the dead, the righteous and the wicked. That means like all the Nazis who slaughtered Jewish people brutally during World War II, they're not staying six feet under. God is going to take that person's body and rematerialize it and stand him back on his feet and he's going to give every evil person what they deserve. And I don't know what we're going to be doing while we watch that. But I am really thankful that God is going to vindicate his justice on this earth, that he is going to vindicate his people. He's going to show that ultimately he is their hero. He's going, to, he's going to comfort them by raising them from the dead. He's going to comfort them by sending those who perpetrated evils on them to the same place that the, the enemy is going to be burning in. And you know what? I'm, I'm thankful for that. I, that. That actually helps me believe in God. Because when I see the evil on the planet, when I read about the Holocaust, I do have a faith crisis. It's really hard. And I have to keep referencing back to the resurrection. I just lose it. So that was really comforting to me, reading about that. Um, verse, Acts 24, verses 17 and 18, Paul was presenting offerings in the temple for a Nazarite vow. Yeah, that word for offerings there is Psalm 43.74. It's animal sacrifices. If Paul was against the temple service, what was he doing doing animal sacrifices in the temple to prove that he continued to be an observant Jew? It just doesn't make sense. Unless he was pro-Torah. And he was. And that proves it. And we can't just gloss over stuff like this. We can't just say, well, you know, Paul was, uh, he was a really slimy guy. He wasn't consistent. You know, he liked to pretend. So, you know, when he was with observant Jews, he pretended to be an observant Jew. You know, he was a Jew to the Jews. But you know, when he was with the Gentiles, man, give me that ham sandwich because I'm free from the law. And you know what? I might pretend to be observant around the Jews, but you and I, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you, know, you and I know differently. I mean, was this Paul? This is the popular opinion of Paul. People read these passages and they say, oh, well, he wasn't really observant. He wasn't really doing those animal sacrifices because he meant it. <laughs> give me a break. I mean, really? Paul was a man of integrity. He was a man who fervently believed what he believed. He was firm on his convictions. And either he was for the Torah in its entirety, and he was for the temple service, or he was against it. And there is no gray area. So, 
I sure got excited on that one, didn't I? But I just, it bothers me that the body of Messiah consistently slanders Paul and continues to promote rumors about him that were circulating in the first century that he went to the temple and he offered animal sacrifices to try and, uh, like, resolve, and we, we just don't get it. Acts 25.8, just to belabor the point, Paul straight up says that he committed no offense against the Torah. Paul's testimony is that he did not break the Torah, he did not transgress mitzvot, he did nothing for uh, straight up. Um, 25.10, he, he says that he cast his vote against believers so that they would be sentenced to death. That, would, that, that indicates to us that Paul was on the Sanhedrin, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, because it was the members of the Sanhedrin that had that authority to cast a vote for or against someone who was um, on, like, on, on, on trial. Um, 25 verse 14, Paul goes out of his way to clarify that Yeshua did not speak to him in Greek. When he was on the way to Damascus, he spoke to him in Hebrew. And uh, the NIV, the not very inspired version, actually, the, the translators actually had the gall to translate the Greek term for Hebrew as Aramaic. There's another term for Aramaic that has to do with Syriac. And they actually had the gall to translate the Greek term for Hebrew as Aramaic. I did not speak to Paul in Aramaic on the way to Damascus, contrary to some accurate translations. It was Hebrew. And it, NASB too, they try and tone it down. They say dialect instead of language. The Greek term there is translated language in most other places in the New Testament. Let's finish with this one verse. I want to share with you a verse that has been something of a life goal for me. Um, this is more like just a personal thing I wanted to share with you. It might be something that you might want to adopt as a life goal also. Acts 25, verse 19. Paul says, uh, So, King Agrippa, um, yeah, 2619, thank you, Acts 2619. So, King Agrippa, I didn't prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. Paul's my hero for that. He was true to the revelation that he had. You know, to the degree that Yeshua gave him a heavenly vision. Paul acted on that heavenly vision. He, he carried it out in his life. And, uh, you know, that took some sacrifice on his part. Significant sacrifice. May it, be, may it be the case for each one of us. You know, may we be true to what the Father shows us. May we be true to the revelation of Mashiach that we have received so far and the revelation that He's going to give us. May we, may we carry out our mission to the full. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.